welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Philip Spies from Moffitt Cancer Center talking about advances in diagnosing and management of penile cancer. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you as part of the UCSF uh, Urology COVID Lecture Series. Uh, I know this has been incredibly successful, and I definitely want to give a lot of credit to Dr. Pruthi and all the organizers for putting this together. A lot of my trainees have given me some very favorable feedback, and it's it's a privilege to be speaking to you as part of this lecture series. So I'll be speaking to you uh, today about penile cancer, uh, something that I, believe it or not, uh, dedicate a significant part of my practice to. My only disclosure is my leadership role within the NCCN as the vice chair of the panel on bladder and penile cancer, as well as a uh, president of a new society specifically dedicated to rare genital tumors. So as you all probably know, penile cancer is fairly rare. Uh, It only represents less than 2,200 cases, even up to uh, 2021. Uh, And uh, really, uh, although it's a fairly rare cancer, it's a very challenging cancer to treat. Again, part of that relates to its rarity, but part of it relates also to its fairly resistant uh, tumor type to chemotherapy, which we'll be discussing today. So what does that represent? About 400 to 420 deaths attributable to penile cancer every single year. And unfortunately for many of you that have seen patients with advanced penile cancer, it could be a very symptomatic and challenging uh, disease to treat. That represents less than 1% of all malignant neoplasms. One of the important uh, things to start off by discussing is that the staging system for penile cancer has recently changed uh, approximately uh, two and a half years ago to the AJCC version eight. The distinguishing feature relates to T2 and T3, T2 relating to tumor invasions of the corpus spongiosum, T3 relating to cavernosal involvement. And we now see that urethral involvement in itself is not a distinguishing feature. Also the end status, N1 being up to two lymph nodes without external extension, greater than two uh, lymph nodes, either unilateral or bilateral, without external extension representing N2 disease. And this is a review article we wrote uh, a few months ago, and it highlights these differences related to the AJCC 7th and 8th edition. Uh, an important factor relating to that is the reason the 8th uh, uh, edition sort of uh, was generated is it was found to be much more prognostic and allowed better stratification of patients based on this. What does that look like at the level of histopathology? And this is what you have. This is a T1 tumor. You see some tumor within the subepithelial tissue. As you see here, spongiosal involvement, you're seeing uh, some clones of cancer cells within the spongiosum. And these are the cavernosal uh, smooth muscle where you have, in fact, cancer that's present within them. So this is the distinction of T1 to T3. So this is what it looks like uh, when you uh, specifically break it down from the T1 into T1A and T1B. Uh, And specifically, T1B includes tumors that have lymphovascular invasion or a new feature called perineural invasion, where you see here some some cancer present within the nerve sheaths themselves. So as I mentioned, uh, this is uh, one of the articles that was published relating to these differences and better prognostication of the new staging system, but you see that it's not perfect yet. And what I mean by that is you see here, for example, in this collaboration with colleagues from China that we were involved in, you see that unfortunately, although T1A, the, the, the prognostic is very favorable, 
you see among T1, B, T2s, there's a lot of crossover. So although prognostication is improved, it's still not ideal. And I suspect that will change further over time. This also is an important factor because as you all probably know, and we'll be discussing, is that T1 high-grade tumors is a distinguishing feature for when you should perform a lymph node dissection. And when you look at some registry data using the SEER database, you see that even patients who have indications to undergo lymph node dissection, only about a third of patients are in fact undergoing surgery. And although uh, this is probably more standardized and I would say homogeneous in, in management in cancer centers, uh, you see, still see that's not perfect with only about three quarters of patients undergoing lymph node dissection if they have an imperative indication to undergo that surgery. In terms of end status, as we're discussing, uh, two nodes or less, whether uni or bilateral, as long as there's no external extensions, N1. If you have three or more, that's N2. But once you have pelvic nodes or you have external extension, you will move on to N3 status. Also, histology is an important factor. And what I mean by that is we know certain subtypes of histologies like verrucous, which is highly associated with HPV, has a very favorable prognosis. But we see other types like basaloid or sarcomatoid carcinomas have a much worse prognosis. So although stage and grade are important, but histology as well is an additional factor. This is a somewhat sombering uh, factor is when you start looking at temporal trends in survival for PNOC cancer using uh, either a European registry or, or the SEER database, you see that unfortunately the survival curves have not improved for the most part for PNOC cancer over the last 20 to 25 years. And this was looked at in a paper published a few years ago from Fox Chase Cancer Center, in which they looked at this in over 1,100 patients within the NCDB database, and they saw that the use of systemic chemotherapy has improved from, again, about a third to close to 50%. But unfortunately, when they looked at what factors predicted survival, in fact, inguinal lymph node dissection was the single factor which predicted a better survival, meaning if patients had surgery in, in, in the context of an indication for surgery, Inguinal dissection did it better. Radiation chemotherapy did not improve specifically survival. So this is, these are survival curves broken down by lymph node status if they had a lymph node dissection. And when you start breaking it down, as you'll see here in this right curve, those patients that underwent inguinal lymph node dissection uh, are sort of uh, undergo uh, and have very consistent survival curves irrespective of chemo or radiation uh, status. And the ones that did not undergo a lymph node dissection, their curves are very consistent. So you see dichotomous breakdown of patients based on lymph node dissection status. We looked at this a few uh, sub subsequently in, in two uh, centers, uh, our center here at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Milan. And you see uh, at our centers, uh, only about two thirds of patients underwent neagic chemotherapy over that period of close to about 15 years. And you see again on multivariate analysis, no period operative treatment was associated with improved cancer specific overall survival. The factors that predicted most how patients were going to do is their nodal status. So breaking down by N1 versus N2 versus N3, those are really the factor that predict the strongest how ultimately your patients are going to do. Also, we see that in terms of adoption and consistent uh, utilization of NCCN guidelines or other guidelines for that matter, you see again, uh, this is not done consistently across the board. Again, of patients who underwent oh, and had indications for angle lymph node dissection, only again, about three quarters of patients underwent surgery. And you see use of chemotherapy in the setting of, of T1 and, and T2, T1, a low grade and high grade, 
was also very inconsistent. And, and oftentimes patients were getting radiation chemotherapy in the in context of not necessarily having indications for doing so. Uh, we do see that there's a better adoption to undergoing surgery in recent years. Uh, probably it's associated with probably expertise, adoption of minimally invasive surgery. And I would say a decreased slight morbidity in surgery. But that being said, the factors that predict patients undergoing and adherence to guidelines in terms of angiomethodosection is where they were treated, the type of insurance that the patients ultimately had, and uh, part of the country uh, they were sort of treated at. This is just to give you a, a few uh, highlights related to the molecular pathways in PNOC cancer. About 40 to 60% of PNOC cancers are related to the HPV. And uh, that's really, uh, this effect is generated through the E6 and E7 oncoproteins, which elicit their effects through the P53 and the retinoblastoma pathways, which ultimately result in carcinogenesis, cell immortalization through proliferation and aploidy and, and decrease apoptosis. This could be uh, sort of taken advantage of at the cellular level. Uh, there's various compounds specifically can target these pathways. I will tell you in peanut cancer, these are for the most part still in a fairly infant uh, adoption. And I definitely think there's emerging uh, data that potentially immunotherapy in certain types of peanut cancer may be useful as well. Along those lines, I will say there are some exciting phase one and phase two clinical trials, uh, either focused on peanut cancer in and of itself or really encompass peanut cancer as a squamous cell carcinoma, which are very exciting using various immunotherapies, either in combinations with various types of, of vaccines or other types of uh, potentiating immune uh, treatments. This is a, a slide taken from a review article we published a few years ago. And I will tell you vaccination and setting of, of, of peanut cancer and trying to really reduce the risk well, the data for that is really based on, on, on a series of uh, studies that were sort of published a few years ago in the New England Journal uh, with the lead author being Dr. Anna Giuliano. And really what she showed is vaccinating high-risk males really decreases preneoplastic lesions of penile cancer. Uh, but for the most part, it's very challenging to show a decrease in the incidence of penile cancer, ultimately due to the rarity of the disease. That being said, uh, as we propose, in high-risk males, probably HPV vaccination makes sense in addition to the downstream other effects it has in terms of head and neck cancer, rectal cancer, and, uh, and obviously uh, the effect it has on partners as well. Uh, something which is more hypothesis, and I would tell you not at this point, not really very evidence-based, is how about patients who have preneoplastic lesions? Does it make sense to vaccinate uh, using uh, HPV vaccines? Or similarly, if patients are, are on immunotherapy or on various forms of systemic therapy, could you potentiate an immune response using these, these types of therapies? And I'll tell you the data is emerging, but I definitely think this is an exciting area. So what do the NCCN guidelines tell us? And I'll sort of talk a little bit about that. Well, we're gonna focus first by talking about penile preserving surgery. So the first thing to always remember is when you're managing a primary tumor, you wanna obviously resect the tumor in its entirety with negative margins. But whenever possible, you want to try to see if there is a potential ability to do some form of penile sparing surgery. Obviously, the effects that resecting uh, the penis and, and, and this specific tissue on patients is really very significant in terms of depression, in terms of functional status long term. And although it's poorly uh, studied at this point, I would tell you depression scores and un unfortunately suicidal scores are fairly high in some of the patients that have to undergo some mutilating surgery. 
we looked at this in terms of national trends of penile sparing uh, treatments, and I would tell our European counterparts probably have done a better job. But you see that we're getting probably more familiar and really uh, from an evolutionary standpoint are using penile sparing surgeries in a more meaningful way today than we did in the past, but there are probably some similar opportunities to do so. This is a, uh, a nice paper that was published from the group from the United Kingdom, and they really looked at margin status because as we once were taught, you know, the, the days of getting a two centimeter margin uh, is really not required at this point. And then Nick Watkin and his group looked at ultimately the size of margins that they received in patients undergoing penile sparing surgery in over 340 patients. And what they showed, as you see in this nice table, is that as long as your margins were uh, greater than one millimeter, patients ultimately risk of recurrence was really quite low. When you get into that less than one millimeter is where you probably have some higher level of subjectivity in terms of truly negative margins. And this is a, a, a nice comprehensive uh, manuscript we wrote and it was published in Journal Urology a few years ago. Looked at over 1200 patients undergoing penile sparing surgery. Uh, recurrences for the most part uh, happen in a, in a small subset of patients and most of these were highly easily matched uh, using some form of penile sparing surgery or treatment approach in the future. And very rarely did this adversely affect patients' oncological outcomes in terms of risk of progression or ultimately of death to their disease. That being said, you see recurrences can happen anytime in the first five years. So it's important to be very vigilant and look out for recurrences. So again, this paper, which was the largest series of penile sparing surgery using and looking at circumcision, wide local excision, laser, and you see here, uh, five-year cancer-specific survival is pretty consistent, over 70%. Recurrence risk is about 20, 25%. And the factors that predict greatest recurrence are treatment type and clinical stage. Risk of relapse, as we we're discussing, can happen anywhere along those timelines of the first five years, but no question, most recurrences will happen between year one and two. In terms of penile-preserving surgery, uh, Really, we looked and, and reported also on specifically management of carcinoma in situ in 200 patients. And you see here that uh, most recurrences happen within the first year or two, and most of these were highly manageable. Uh, that being said, when you look at what modality was associated with the highest risk of recurrence of all these, these uh, penile sparing surgical approaches, laser was the one we found was highly associated with uh, recurrences. So if you're gonna do laser, you have to be fairly vigilant as you do for the others, but no question the risk of recurrence would seem to be quite high. So people always ask me, how do you manage carcinoma in situ in my practice? Well, topical chemotherapy is actually a very useful modality to treat. This is an older paper published in European Urology, again, from the group from the United Kingdom, a retrospective study of primary and recurrent penile carcinoma in situ. And what they do at their center, they treat 5-FU uh, first as a first line and imiquimod as a second line agent, typically for a period of about six weeks. And really, well, in a cohort of about 86 patients uh, treating with carcinoma situ over a follow-up of over two and a half years, they saw a complete response. It was seen in about 57% of patients, partial responses in about 13%. So again, overall, an objective response in about 70% of patients and toxicity was really uh, fairly well tolerated. We also looked at this in our cohort of patients, smaller subset of patients, as you see here. As you see here, great, uh, in terms of severe toxicity, very minimal. I would tell you most of the toxicity related to these agents usually lasts only a few weeks. And I sort of highlight that for patients. Usually when I treat patients for six weeks, 
I'll see them about three months total uh, after they're completed the treatment. So six weeks of treatment, six weeks of just ops, uh, of uh, recovery, see them back in three months and ultimately have a fairly low threshold for vibe, see if I see anything that's left. So how do you manage non-palpable nodes? Uh, this is a, a earlier paper uh, published from the Netherlands group. They really were one of the first to report that if a patient has an indication to undergo lymph node dissection, meaning a, a high stage and grade tumor, they should probably undergo the surgery early on. The reason being is that if you wait for patients to present with palpable disease, this is what happens. Their survival is impacted by this. We looked at this as well in our cohort of patients at our cancer center. This is uh, reported by uh, my graduate fellow who's now an attending at the University of Arizona, Juan Cipollini, in 84 patients. And really we found a cut point is of three months. So if someone has an imperative indication to undergo a lymph node dissection, you probably should perform that surgery within the first three months. And these are how the survival curves sort of splay out when you look at it in that fashion. So it's important to highlight this fact because I still see this being done. So if someone has a palpable node, uh, a biopsy makes a lot of sense because if the biopsy is positive, you move forward with treatments. The days of giving four to six weeks of oral antibiotics really is, is no longer unless the patient has an underlying infection which could impact treating that patient potentially surgically. So really do not want to delay therapy by giving antibiotics for a, a duration of time. And really biopsy has a very high yield in terms of sensitivity and specificity and the risk of needle tract is really minimal to none. So again, if you look at the 2020 and 2021 guidelines, really they follow that is if you have a patient who has palpable non-bulky disease, a biopsy of the node allows you to proceed uh, with surgery if they in fact have an indica uh, indication of biopsy that's pr uh, proven positive or consider any chemotherapy in certain uh, subsets of patients. If again, it's a high primary lesion, it's not unreasonable to move forward surgery. If they do have bulkier disease or pelvic nodal disease, then obviously the use of a systemic chemotherapy as a multimodal treatment definitely makes sense or consideration in a, in a, in a clinical trial like the IMPACT trial, which is currently open across both Europe and uh, United States and Canada. So how do you do the surgery? Well, there's many different approaches. I think if you're doing an open approach, a subinguinal or just along the inguinal crease, uh, identifying the, the inguinal ligament, adductor longus and sartorius muscles, and really dissecting out this triangle. Usually I'll go and move forward by identifying the saphenous vein, following it to the saphenofemoral junction, and cleaning out all of these respective four quadrants of your dissection. Uh, you know, we've looked at the complications associated with lymph dissection. This was a paper that was published just a, a few years ago. Uh, and you see here that the complication rates still remain quite high, about 50%. Most of these are fairly minor. That, that being said, it's definitely something that patients need to be aware of. Managing these complications for the most part is, is, is fairly consistent. I definitely think there have been some efforts to standardize treatment, and I think there's an upcoming review, which hopefully will provide some additional insights. So look out for that. That will be from Ben Aris. Should be published in European Urology Oncology in the coming months. And uh, in terms of management and reporting complications, we looked at this in a very comprehensive fashion, over 320 patients, supported a few years ago in the BJU. And you see, again, most complications, which happen in about 50% of patients, are minor, about two-thirds are minor, and about a third of these are major complications. And again, uh, in terms of what predicts complications, I apologize if this, this is hard to see, but it's the number of lymph nodes you resect and it's pathological node of status. Those are the strongest predictors. So ultimately, if you do a, a comprehensive, extensive surgical dissection, 
you're at greater risk of getting complications. And again, this is the breakdown of complications in between minor and major. Major complications, for the most part, require sometimes multimodal treatment, meaning involvement of plastic surgery, sometimes resection of necrotic tissue. I think wound vacs have been a game changer in terms of potentially salvaging a lot of these areas. And I definitely think minimally invasive surgery, which is being rapidly adopted in many centers, has a role. This is a paper that was published a few years ago from the group for memory from both the urology and melanoma group. Comprehensive review of 29 patients who underwent this uh, laparoscopic immunolymphoma uh, dissection approach. And you see most of these patients had minor complications uh, that were highly easy to treat. Major complications were significantly not less frequently seen. In terms of the approach itself, usually a, uh, a three trocar approach. It's important of getting uh, the laparoscopic trocars placed laterally to avoid clashing and uh, balloon insufflation and development of that, uh, that uh, space and really following uh, really the inguinal ligament and skeletonizing it as we would in open surgery. Oftentimes in the robotic approach, the saphenous vein is taken and the superficial deep lymph nodes are taken on block. So that's also something which is a little bit different versus the uh, conventional open approach as well. This is the largest series of robotic versus open. Uh, this was published in uh, Journal Urology uh, about a year ago. It looked at uh, 51 robotic versus 100 open inguinal lymph node dissections. You see these were really very well matched in terms of nodal status and other comorbidities. And ultimately what you saw here is that a significantly lower incidence of complications was seen. So in terms of um, who should undergo robotic versus an open, I think we'll talk about that in, in, in the next slide, but I definitely think that uh, it's important to really tailor your approach based on what ultimately is the burden of disease. So a pure laparoscopic single site approach, which clearly now is being done robotically as well, definitely also has some benefits. And this is one of the earlier reports from Tobias Mercado from Brazil. And in terms of which patients should undergo a minimally invasive, well, obviously, if you've got bulky disease, if you've given significant chemotherapy, if you need to resect adjacent skin, if they've received previous radiation, those are probably more suitable to an open approach. And uh, another, uh, I think, approach which is getting a lot of attention is the sentinel lymph node biopsy. Our, our European counterparts have done a very nice job popularizing and really refining this technique. Uh, Simon Hornblast is really the one who's developed this at the Netherlands Cancer Institute using a combination of preoperative injection of technetium and uh, sulfur blue dye and really showing initially the false negative rates were reported to be as high as 18 percent. Uh, we looked at this when I was a fellow back at MD Anderson uh, using uh, these patients underwent a sentinel uh, lymph node biopsy and then underwent the gold standard inguinal lymph node dissection on the ipsilateral side. And what we found in this quarter 31 patients and again all patients had no palpable inguinal adenopathy is that there were two false negatives. So the overall sensitivity is only 71%. Now, since then, there's been some refinements in this technique, such as the use of preoperative ultrasound in those with clinically node negative. And if that node is in fact seen, a biopsy is obtained. And really, it's, it really has a refined this technique and reduced significantly uh, false negatives dramatically. This is uh, actually a very exciting development, uh, which I give a lot of credit to our counterparts, again, from Netherlands, led by Oscar Brower, who, who's uh, focusing to penile cancer at this point. Uh, Oscar has treated over 700 groins in 400 patients using combination not only of technetium, but now of IGC dye uh, using a very comprehensive approach. They've really uh, obtained outstanding results with really um, 
sensitivity and specificities in excess of 95%, and none of these patients ultimately being missed. And you can see the quality of the imaging that you can get both intraoperatively and preoperatively are excellent. So I definitely think this is some exciting work that is to follow. Obviously, many centers in North America don't have the ability to do so, part uh, due to the investment, both in expertise and in technology, definitely something to follow. How about advanced disease? Well, multimodal approach definitely has, has really been defined by this phase two clinical trial uh, published by Lance Pagliaro back in JCO, so over 11 years ago. 30 patients were treated for bulky disease, clinical N2, N3, with TIP-based chemotherapy for four cycles and followed by surgery. They had an objective response in about 50% of patients, only about a 10% uh, complete response. And again, 50% of patients underwent surgical uh, uh, treatment thereafter. And in terms of the survival curves, you see, again, progression-free survival curves uh, are signally uh, uh, depicted here and are different based on response to systemic chemotherapy, other factors as well, involvement of adjacent skin. We published this meta-analysis um, about a year ago, looking and taking all the data on neogenic chemotherapy, including some of the retrospective and potentially some of the lower level evidence in smaller series. And you see at the end of the day, overall response rates to neogenic chemotherapy of about 53% and complete response rates of about 16% were reported. In terms of toxicity, TIP-based chemotherapy is definitely without its side effect with uh, overall toxicity as high as 40%. This is also some work we've done as a part of a large collaborative of over uh, 900 patients with phenol cancer and looking and trying to determine which are the selective criteria we should be using for neogenic chemotherapy. No question, uh, performance status remains a strong predictor of how patients are going to do in bulk of nodal disease, no question as well, and site of disease. Obviously, patients who have burn disease confined to anal sites versus pelvic sites uh, do better. As well, uh, we're based on this, we're able to predict and tailor patients in terms of responders versus non-responders, and no question, if you respond to neogenic chemotherapy, no question, you're going to likely do better. Also from this work, we've developed this risk calculator, which helps you under identify and tailor which patients should receive adjuvant therapy based on number of nodes removed, number of nodes involved with cancer, and ultimately pathological nodal status and uh, surgical margin status as well. In terms of PET-CT, people always ask, should we get a PET-CT on everyone with penile cancer? I would say, when you look at the data, really it, it is a very useful study to get in patients who have clinically node positive disease, but in patients clinically no negative, it really has very limited to no value. So I don't typically get in patients who do not have helpful disease. And there's a few papers I've looked at this, but I would tell you PET activity also predicts uh, how patients are going to do, uh, not only in terms of uh, what you're gonna find in the histopathology, but also risk of progression. And you can really see some very elegant and uh, small volume of deposits of disease with PET-CT, which sometimes may help you identify the extent of your surgical dissection. You can find in rare instances, disease outside of your primary landing zones, and this sometimes help you tailor which patients ultimately should undergo such surgery. When should you give adjuvant radiation? Well, and, you know, we published this paper a couple of years ago of giving adjuvant radiation patient with pelvic node positive disease as part of a collaborative of 92 patients. You see that patients who receive adjuvant radiation in the setting of positive lymph node positive disease did better. Uh, there's no question there are some selection biases when you look at data in this way. But that being said, these curves clearly show you, particularly patients who have uh, pelvic node positive disease, higher volume of disease, external extension, 
there is clearly uh, some consideration should be made to giving them radiation therapy. So again, when should you give radiation therapy? Well, obviously, if, you, if you're concerned of local control, if uh, knee edge is setting, if you feel that the patient's really not surgically resectable without significant morbidity, and also based on pathological post-resection findings, external extension, pelvic nodes, surgical margins, as mentioned, or if a patient has local regional recurrence, it is a consideration as well. In terms of enlarged pelvic lymph nodes, uh, there is a little bit of data on this, so we'll talk a little bit about it. So obviously, if a patient has pelvic enlarged lymph nodes in the setting of, of, of advanced penile cancer, then obviously a biopsy is very useful. And if, in fact, they have advanced disease knee edge and chemotherapy, and if they have a good response, uh, then potentially tailor them. But that's probably one where PET-CT would be a useful modality to get. So uh, previously, and I think this remains, is that the, pr the prognosis of patients with pelvic node positive disease still remains quite challenging. Survival curves anywhere from zero to 33% uh, survival at, at about three years. And there is still some controversy in terms of management, but I, I definitely say that uh, there have been some quality data that's been published in recent years. So let's take a little look at, at this. People always ask, what's the extent of the node dissection you should perform? Well, you can do this obviously robotic or open or pure laparoscopic, but obturator, external iliac and comiac lymph nodes really follows to the most part a, a cystectomy type of node dissection. And uh, our Italian counterparts looked at this in terms of trying to predict which patients should undergo pelvic lymph node dissection in the absence of radiographic preoperative pelvic node disease. They found that about 31% of patients have positive pelvic lymph nodes and the factors predicted having positive pelvic lymph nodes three or more positive inguinal nodes, inguinal lymph nodes greater than three centimeters or presence of external extension. So if you had all three risk factors or risk of having positive pelvic lymph nodes went up to 57% versus if you had none of these, it was 0%. The Netherlands group also looked at it in their cohort, the incidence of pelvic node positivity was about 24%. And the factors they found is two or more positive nodes or again, uh, external extension was found. We've looked at this as well in terms of predicting when you should do a unilateral versus a bilateral nodal uh, dissection. This looked at in 140 patients and on multivariate analysis, having four or more positive angle lymph nodes predicted having bilateral disease. So it helps you really tailor, maybe a, a, a bilateral node dissection should be considered in that co uh, cohort of patients with higher volume disease, particularly four or more nodes. And also in terms of pelvic external extension, we did publish this work as well, which showed that giving adjunct chemotherapy specifically with pelvic external extension was shown to improve survival. And this is seen here as well. Again, understanding this is somewhat a selection uh, bias. Clearly some patients who had advanced disease clearly did not make it uh, to, to receive chemotherapy. So there's no question some element that needs to be considered. So I do think there's some, some good data here that's evolving in terms of when you should do a node dissection and what's the extent of node dissection. But this upcoming prospective impact trial, I think will help us validate that. People always ask, how do you, should you survey penile cancer? Well, this is probably the best quality published data at this point. It was a retrospective study from the Netherlands of over 700 patients. And they found that all regional distant recurrences happen within 15 and 16 months respectively. And all patients with distant recurrences often will, will die unfortunately within the first year or two. As you see here, local regional recurrences happen in that timeline, but distant recurrences, again, they, they unfortunately happen quickly and unfortunately are very hard to salvage. Um, and uh, we've actually done some work on this, and hopefully this work will get published in the coming months. 
but you see here again, local inguinal and pelvic relapses. Uh, these are the survival curves they follow. This is looking at it in over 700 patients treated at high volume centers. And we really tried to tailor and, and standardize uh, for the most part, how we should be surveying patients. So we looked at when recurrences happen along these timelines and broken down by end status, and also looked at it to capture 95% of recurrences. It helps us tailor a little bit the surveillance strategies. And looking at these, plots you see uh, ultimately when these recurrences happen. Again, it helps you tailor a little bit how you should follow patients. So people often ask, well, how should we manage local regional recurrences? So first of all, these are fairly rare. So these are patients who underwent an inguinal ethno dissection who recur in the inguinal layer thereafter. Obviously, if they have an isolated recurrence, you can consider uh, surgically salvaging them. Oftentimes you would treat them with neoadjuchemotherapy. It's important to know most of these recurrences will happen the first year. And oftentimes, these patients, if they undergo surgery, are at high risk of complications. In over 50%, we see complications. And this was published in Journal Urology. Again, 20 patients treated at high volume centers. So it tells you, obviously, a very highly selected uh, cohort of patients, as you see here. And the flip side is, if you're not going to consider surgery, the other option is radiation. Well, how effective is radiation? Well, it's not a very good salvaging modality. Only about 10% of patients uh, were successfully salvaged with radiation. Most of these recurrences in this series published as well happen within the first year, typically within the first six months. There's a role for specifically isolated uh, nodal recurrence to be treated with aggressive surgical resection. We looked at this in our group, and there is probably a very, very select role for a select uh, RPLND in patients who have an isolated recurrence, particularly if it's a later recurrence where the patient has a biology which is shown to be fairly stable, particularly if they respond to chemotherapy, and also if it's shown on PET-CT to be isolated to a given site. This is one patient who underwent uh, recurrence, a resection of this uh, neural recurrence here, and actually has done well two years out. This, as I was mentioning, for these salvage uh, inguinal lymph node dissection, oftentimes you have to do flaps. This is VRAM flaps that we do in, in certain cases such as this. They're bulky flaps, but they give you excellent soft tissue coverage. But that being said, there's a very high rate of complications. As you see here, most of these related to wound necrosis, requiring debridement. And I would tell you it's, it's important if patients are undergoing surgery to obviously tailor it to really the only ones you feel are going to benefit from it. And also for patients to understand there is high morbidity associated with this. And uh, I, I definitely think that whenever these surgeries are being considered, it requires a multimodal approach uh, using our, our plastic surgical reconstructive colleagues. As I was mentioning earlier, the IMPACT trial is an exciting trial, which is taking place right now across uh, the globe and mostly in the UK, United States, and Canada, with over 50 patients accrued. So the hopefully 200 patients will be accrued over the next year or two. This study is really looking as a prospective study really uh, the role of neagic chemo or chemo radiation in patients with bulky nodal disease and uh, patients uh, if they have aggressive features on the surgical dissection are candidates to undergo a subsequent uh, randomization to either adjuvant chemo radiation or pelvic prophylactic pelvic lymph node dissection again answering many of the questions which we've seen and looked at in a retrospective fashion hopefully either uh, validating or refining these findings so no question, this study is important. And if you have patients who you think may be candidates, definitely reach out to centers uh, local regionally, or uh, I, I serve as the surgical uh, chair for the study. So you could reach out to me. Uh, my email's uh, gonna be attached, but definitely reach out. We'd love to hopefully accrue patients to this study. 
As I was mentioning, my caveat is I am the president of this society. It's a nonprofit, a society dedicated to rare GU tumors. It has a series of educational materials for both patients, families, and also healthcare workers. So that may be something that maybe people are interested in, but we have some exciting initiatives related to that. And uh, as I was talking uh, previously, the impact trial is going to hopefully accrue 200 patients over the next year or two and report out thereafter. And I definitely think it, it will answer some meaningful questions. And as I was mentioning related to this global society, it is a global initiative and the hopes is that we will uh, provide uh, some important educational uh, resources and uh, potential resource resources across the world, particularly in parts of the world where the, these may not be available. As some of you may know, I'm a Canadian trained originally, trained at McGill and in Toronto. So I, I usually like uh, quotes from uh, some uh, Canadian physicians and Sir William Oster is definitely one I always look up to. It's important to understand that obviously the, the good physician treats the disease, the great physician treats the patient as the disease. And I think we have to personalize our therapeutic approaches to patients. And uh, this is a perfect example where really there's a lot of to consider in patients with penile cancer particularly uh, treating the cancer as a highest priority with uh, excellent oncological outcomes, really try to minimize morbidity whenever possible. And on that note, I hope this uh, talk was of uh, interest and benefit to all of you. And uh, this is uh, definitely a, a questionnaire. Hopefully you all can, can uh, uh, fill out just to give feedback to the organizers of this lecture series and similar to myself to see how uh, of value this is and potentially improve uh, lecture for, for future uh, attendees. Thanks again, very best wishes to all of you and have a safe uh, start to 2021. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.